Yes, and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Hey Home and Can't Go today, is your old pal Ocho. I just remembered something we were talking about before we started recording this. Dinodor started in movies before Marilyn Monroe. What a lot of people forget is that when Marilyn Monroe hit big, the British newspapers were saying, oh, Marilyn Monroe, apparently she's the American version of Diana Dawes. <laughs> really? A bit like, and a lot of people forget this, is I remember the first I heard about Britney Spears. Was, oh, Britney Spears, it's like the American version of Billy. <laughs> and hello, sitcom club downloaders. <laughs> the reason I just wanted to say that before I forgot. Yes, the reason we're talking about Diana Dawes beforehand was... Hopefully it'll be on iPlayer still by the time you hear this. It was a lovely little documentary on BBC Two just the other day about the origins of breakfast television and particularly the early rivalry between breakfast time and TVM. And it was absolutely chock full of anecdotes, lovely little stories in there. So if you can get hold of it, get hold of a copy of it. But one that particularly stuck in my mind was Nick Owen describing being on the air with Anne Diamond. VT is going out. A floor manager arrives and said to them, don't be alarmed if at some point the lights go out. He said, why is that? And he said, because the guy from the electricity board has come to cut us off because we didn't pay the bill. That's the kind of thing that doesn't normally go on at big TV stations. These days, probably happens all the time. But back then, <laughs> not really the norm. So what's today's topic of discussion? Or do we have any outstanding business from Well, people? yes, yes, we do. We have some outstanding business, and it's coming from me in the form of a confessional. Oh, this is always death. Now, now what? No, see, I've got a, something that I've got to say. And it's it, it's unfortunate, but there you go. You appreciate, Ocho, that we're now in the PG era. Yes. I have the bleeper if you want some bleeps. Well, we won't be needing the bleeps. This is a thing. Because we're in the PG era, and we have been for a few weeks now. But hang on a minute. Do you want to explain why? Again, just in case anybody has constantly heard the saying PG era. Okay, when I say PG era, what I mean is that... In the first couple of batches of the show, which has been going since April 2013, I, being a filthy foul mouth, would quite often come out with all manner of salty sailor talk. And then, after those first couple of runs, I was thinking, well, a lot of the shows that we're talking about, the kind of dates of those shows, like sort of 30 years old and so on, the kind of shows that maybe get repeated on ITV3 these days, I don't know, my my language just seems a little bit odd. I I, I hate that word demographic, but you know, you know what I'm getting at. So so I thought, okay, well, let's drop the corsities, and there you are. So for the past few weeks, I've been on my best behaviour, and I've not been saying anything out of turn, and that then means that we are labelled as clean. But wait! Because we're not! Do you know why? Because some stupid bastard, no bleeps required, forgot to untick the explicit button, which I just discovered about three hours ago, which means that every single episode that we've been putting out in this run has been labelled as explicit. Okay. That's my confession. So the PG era is abandoned. Mainly because... Are we not necessarily going on to... Back to the PG era for next week? I haven't even worked out yet how to do it. Okay, here's the problem, right? Can I make my confession? Ladies and gentlemen, you may hear subsequent references to the PG era and swear words being bleeped out because these podcasts don't necessarily go out in the order they were recorded. (laughs) This is true. This is true. But no, here's the shocking thing. And actually, I did discover this. 
the other day. Apparently, if you put stuff out on iTunes, specifically iTunes, and it's got like, you know, course taste and what have you in it, and you don't label it as explicit, then you can apparently fall foul and you can get sort of knocked down the rankings and whatever. Now, here's the problem. I can take the explicit tag off. I know how to do it now. I've worked it out now for forthcoming podcasts, but it requires me to take the overall explicit tag off the entire podcast title. And of course, that would mean then that we'd have to go through all the old shows and bleep them all retrospectively. And that's not going to happen. So I'm just going to say now, I will try and be my best behaviour not to use any filth. But I can promise, and just because I can't promise, then we're just going to leave that explicit tag on. But by and large, it's okay. Apart from those couple of words that I said a few minutes ago, then by and large, it's all right. And you can listen to this in the company of all ages. How's that? Sorry, I was just thinking about Rent-A-Ghost and Blasphemy. But let's get on with the matter in hand. Hang on a minute. What do you mean you were thinking of Rent-A-Ghost and Blasphemy? What's that going to do with anything? I was just thinking about Elizabethan and pre-Elizabethan swear words. And how Timothy Claypool on Rent-A-Ghost was always saying odds bodkins, which is actually a way of swearing by the nails that affixed Christ to the cross. Ah, okay. God's bodkins, bodkin being a, an old word. It appears in Hamlet, bear bodkin, being a word for a sharp thing. I was thinking, so horses for courses. He couldn't show Rent-A-Ghost to a prim Elizabethan. Got a little bit of feedback to some recent shows. Lapscat tweeted us and said, never speak of spats again. I think we said it all. That being said, we've got another 24 episodes to cover if they ever come out. Well, I couldn't help it, and I replied in capital letters, spat, exclamation mark, knee-jerk reaction, as we would do on the show. Lapscat replies, just for that, I'm not going to send you the VHS of honey for tea I discovered in my loft. So, there you go. Spats is over, Mooncat. Trouble in mind, that's where it is now. That's the new thing we talk about. Well, it's about. not really, is it? Because we are going to be talking about trouble in mind in a forthcoming episode, aren't we? We've got time, though. We've got time to run that reference into the ground. Okay, so how many times do we have to mention it in the course of the next couple of podcasts? We have to mention it basically every five minutes. Yes. Trouble in mind. Do you want to explain what trouble in mind is for those who don't know? Well, if we're going to cover it. We never explained what spats was until we actually covered it. That being said, there is a bit of a difference. I don't think there's any websites about trouble in mind. <laughs> it's the most middle class sitcom in television. I think it's history. slightly above middle class. <laughs> well, okay. As an example, as an example, one of the episodes ends as a sort of a gag, a play on words, with Richard O'Sullivan pulling out tickets to India. Hey, look, I've got these for you. Let's go and see the Taj Mahal. You know, just just like that. It wasn't like like the huge payoff to the entire series or anything like that. It was just, hey. I can't imagine Terry doing that in Terry and June. No, but that's because Terry and June were middle class. Shall I spill the beans go on, then. Uh, on yeah. future plans? Right, future plans, at some point, we're going to do a multi-part examination. Examination, I say. It's just a reaction. We're not experts. This is a club. It's not a university. It's like a book club. But we're going to be looking at sitcoms and class. Now, traditionally, you would expect us to look at three classes. Working, middle, upper. But I think we should look at four classes. Because I think there is business and professional class. 
that's slightly above Terry and June. People who can afford to lose their jobs, but don't necessarily own entire counties like the ruling classes. And I would say trouble in mind is above middle class. I'm, I would put it in the professional class. Yes, you may be right there. Yeah, I mean, the basic situation throughout is that Richard O'Sullivan wants to buy a big yacht, but his wife wants to start her own business. And he's like, oh, shall I buy the yacht or shall I give her the money to start the business? We all know what that feels like. <sighs> oh, pity me, I cannot buy my yacht. Let's save our hatred and class envy. So do you, Ocho, have any other business outstanding from previous weeks before we get down and dirty with the old mailbag this week? No. I see. In which case, we need to move on to the correspondence. Yeah, we we did put out a request on Twitter and nobody replied. So I'm guessing that's a good thing. We're so comprehensive in our examination of these things that we're answering the questions before they're even asked. We got some questions from some other places. Well, the thing is that people may not be aware of this, but the sitcom club is on Facebook, is it not? Yes, and it is occasionally updated. I updated it today. Doesn't get as much love as the Twitter, though, does it? Well, I'm I'm more of a tweeter than a Facebooker, I have to say. And let's get on with the questions. Who's going to read the questions out? Why don't we do it alternately? Okay. Well, I'm going to start with a question from Neptune J Max, who lives in America and therefore has a different perspective on this stuff. And this is this is going to give us a good opportunity to talk about the nature of British television in days gone by. Why did the last series of Ripping Yarns only have three episodes and why did The Bounder only have 14? Ah. Now we've got a definite answer for Ripping Yarns, which is a really strange commissioning process. I was aware that the fourth series of Monty Python, they commissioned six and were then going to commission a further seven. And when Eric Idle said he wasn't going to be around for the further seven, they jacked it in completely. But series two of Ripping Yarns was commissioned as three, and then they were going to commission a further three. And Ripping Yarns, of course, being, apart from the first episode, all being on film. What was happening to BBC Two in the late 70s that they suddenly looked at three episodes of Ripping Yarns and said, we can't afford to make another three? BBC like a lot of organisations, most organisations in the late 70s, particularly in late 78, winter of 78, 79, would have been under the restrictions of the government pay policy, which the BBC eventually broke in order to resolve an industrial dispute which was threatening to leave screens blank over Christmas. And as part of that, and also as part of the inflation, which was, I think, around about that time, I think it was pushing 20%, they had to be very careful with what they were investing in and shows like Ripping Yarns, a lot of it would have had expensive locations and scenery and props and so on. And yeah, I can imagine that studio-based free walls VT shows would have been rather more cost-effective in terms of how many episodes they could have got out of the same money for however many episodes of Ripping Yarns. The Bounder is a bit more of a mystery. Now, do we before we get onto the bounder? Do we actually do we want to go into the specifics of ripping yarns because we have them in front of us? There wasn't enough money. I think that's enough. Otherwise, we're going to start plagiarizing Andrew Pixley <laughs> because we got it from his very fine booklet, which comes with the Ripping Yarns DVD from Network. Now, listen to this. Listen, right? 
that was me opening the Ripping Yarns DVD box, you see? And as you said, it really is. It's a wonderful little booklet by Andrew Pixley that comes with the DVD. It's This is actually 10 years old now. It was released by Network all the way back in 2004. And, yeah, it's got all the details in there about recording dates. It talks about how they filmed series two or the last three episodes depending on how you want to call it they filmed them sort of either side of filming life of brian in tunisia and how the ideas for the second and third episodes began to emerge between michael Payne and terry jones when they were there and the key point is that although the bbc had commissioned the first three with the intention of then commissioning a further three to make up a series of six it was only ever the first three scripts that had been formally commissioned. And that's why then, when the financial crunch started to take effect, that's why they then decided that they weren't going to persevere with any more shows. And also that Michael Palin and Terry Jones, at that stage, were sort of happy with that decision. They, they felt that, because I mean, they'd be working on the shows, I think it was a period of sort of four years in total. That booklet is so detailed, it even tells you, on occasion specific dates as to when the audience laughter was recorded <laughs> that, that's detail that's yes. the kind of detail that i like the bound is more of a question why is it 14 and not 13 i'm assuming that that is the question because of course the typical american question to ask of a british show is why are there so few on tv tropes they, they have a page called british brevity and i thought we could talk about that for a little bit I don't have a definitive answer as far as the Bounder is concerned. One one thing that does spring to mind is that in the case of some ITV shows, I think this is a more common situation with ITV shows than BBC, possibly to compensate for the loss of those few minutes per episode. You do get a few shows from ITV around about that period of time which are seven episodes in a series. And... As I recall, some of the series of Rising Damp from Yorkshire were seven episodes apiece. So it could well be that you had two series of seven of The Bounder. By that point, I think 82, 83, I think we sort of got past the point where you tended to have single series of 13 episodes, as you did in, for example, the days of the Pythons, late 60s, early 70s. It would not be uncommon to see 13 episodes of a show... Although more often than not, it would normally be a drama that would be given that kind of longevity. And then you've got basically a year's scheduling sewn up in the space of four individual programs. 14 isn't the most export-friendly of numbers. I have my own little theory on this that I'll come back to. But on the whole British brevity thing, again, I don't have a definitive answer, but some theories I can come up with. There's much less real estate or there was in British television, up until 1955, one channel. Which is why you got, like, Pinwright's Progress, which we keep mentioning. That could be the new spats. And we're never going to review that unless... There's no possibility whatsoever. Very, very unusual <laughs> telerecordings come to light. Pinwright's Progress alternated. It wasn't a weekly show, it was every other week. 1955 to 64, two channels... 64 to 82, 3, and, and so forth. We could argue that things started to go wrong in 1982 when that horrible, filthy, foul-mouthed Channel 4 came on. So the real estate is much smaller. Also, I think the talent pool is smaller because you don't really have quite the same thing of 
there being film actors, television actors and stage actors. Well-known British actors tend to have done a bit of everything. Once they get to a certain level of fame, if they, if they are making films regularly, they tend not to go back to television. But also the culture as well of British acting in days gone by, you're always supposed to like stage best. And so people turn, you know, you, you turn down television work to do a couple of months at whatever stage thing you were doing. I think that affects it. And then you've got the slightly more loose networking arrangements. The way the ITV network works, with its slightly more democratic way, everybody's fighting for network slots and the network meetings are a bit of a bear pit. Uh, there is a situation with, and this is the drama version of Spets, with the first series of Callan. ABC made seven episodes for the first series and then found out there were only six slots. So one of the first series episodes turns up in series two, but they have to reshoot chunks of it to explain why the cast is different again for one episode. So with The Bounder, was The Bounder networked? Yes, it was. It was. I'm just wondering if... Because normally you'd think, I've seen it in a few different cases, you make a first series of six or seven. If you think it's enough of a success to get a second series, the second series would be, again, six or seven to make it up to an export-friendly 13. Interesting case in point, ever-decreasing circles, which I think is another one with availability of network slots, but this is this time on BBC One. First series is five episodes. I don't know if it's a strike or available slots. So series two is then eight episodes, brings it up to a friendly 13. I'm just wondering if the bounder being two sets of seven is to do with available network slots, or maybe there's one from series one that they think they can't sell. I wonder if we, given the period of time that we're talking about, I wonder if perhaps we're putting too much stock in this idea of it being for export. Because this is only a couple of years after... They're not necessarily made with eyes, first and foremost, on export. But generally, you'd like to make things in... And another forgotten thing is some people talk about The Prisoner saying, oh, the second series was cancelled as they started shooting it, there is a theory that it was only ever meant to be 17 episodes. There's actually quite a few British shows that are 17. 17 was not an unusual number, despite what you sometimes read in prisoner books saying it was so weird. The, the only one I can think of right off the top of my head now is Shirley's World. But there are a few British shows with 17, but it's just sometimes there's a eye on export, but there is a very loose way of working in British television. I'm just going to say also on the export point that... Certainly today, and I think even from about maybe sort of mid-1980s, particularly when you had Michael Grade in charge at BBC One, they would have had more of an eye on potential exports. You had, for example, things like Super Channel, the pan-European cable network, airing British TV shows, and they would be airing, say, a 50-minute BBC One drama with commercials added to bring it up to an hour and that was quite a normal length for BBC One dramas you don't see that any anymore because slots on BBC One these days tend to be half an hour or an hour but back then even right up until about 2000 when they launched the BBC News at 10 and so that really changed the slots that they had available in peak time you got 50 minute BBC One dramas that was just the normal length for them so that they could then have commercials inserted without the need to have too much in the way of editing. The other thing as well is that by that point, 
1982, I think it was when the Bounder began, you've had some successes in terms of British exports, the principal two being Benny Hill and Monty Python. But even in those instances, they were not being screened by the big networks in prime time. Quite often they were going out on local stations or PBS or whatever it may have been. And I think it's fair to say there wasn't yet a complete, full-on, absolute, thriving British export market. It was in the works. It was something that was emerging. Of course, these days you hear it all the time. You always hear. I mean, that's part of the reason why, ultimately, the ITV stations ditched that model of working with this democratic sort of horse trading going on and then eventually consolidated because they said, you know, we've got to be a single entity making one decision with one mind if we're going to be a big player on the world stage. I would add to that, export does not only mean export to America, though. And there's still a healthy market in the Commonwealth. But for a reason why, if you want to sort of say, well, why is The Bounder only 14 episodes? Why did it not go on and on and on? I think that's the availability of George Cole. Yes, because that's the point at which Minder is really hitting... We wouldn't just say the peak of his popularity, but it was only within a couple of years of becoming a phenomenal success. I suppose you'd say that its peak was maybe Christmas 85, Minder on the Orient Express, went up against To Hull and Back, Only Fools and Horses. I think also, I mean, Peter Bowles at that time was doing a lot of drama. He was filming the RHRM for Channel 4 as well. And of course, Peter Bowles was an established, as you said before, with actors working on the stage a great deal of time, he was an established stage actor. And we know that he had previously turned down a particular role because he was committed to a play that he was <laughs> involved you've, in. You've been reading ahead in the questions, that haven't you? Was, that was a Pebble Mill at One quality segue right there. No, it was I'm going to award that. myself five stars. Okay then, Paul Coyer. <laughs> Bring the topic home then. Well... Neptune J. Max also asks, Is it true that Peter Bowles was originally sought for the role of Jerry Ledbetter in The Good Life, a part which eventually went to Paul Eddington? The answer is yes. And this was revealed by Peter Bowles in the BBC Comedy Connections documentary from about a decade or so ago. And Peter Bowles said he was asked, I think the producer was John Howard Davis, and he was sought for the role. He was committed to a play on the stage at the time, and so he passed on the role. Eventually, of course, as you say, went to Paul Eddington. And as Peter Bowles then related, he was pleased with how it ultimately worked out because he then played opposite Penelope Keith into The Manor Born. And given the kind of storyline that that was, a sort of will-they-won't-they they story, he felt that just would not have worked as well if he was already associated in the public's mind with Penelope Key for the previous three years of The Good Life. How do you think it would have changed the chemistry of The Good Life, though? I'm not sure if Peter Bowles' Jerry might have come across as a little more snide. Possibly, Just by virtue yeah. of having a moustache. <laughs> well, I mean, he could lose the tash. I saw him in something without it, and I didn't recognise him. Well, of course, he's just always... He's always got it, hasn't he? Well, he, was, he, he didn't have the moustache... He'd gone grey and he was playing a cockney gangster. I managed to watch this thing for about half an hour before realising it was Peter Bowles. That was like when we saw Derek Nimmo on 3 2 the other day. Ugh, let's not go, go back over that. <laughs> so yes, that is indeed the case. And yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. I mean, I think 
it's always very, very difficult to imagine somebody else in a role. Even if you think to yourself... It doesn't hey, stop us, though, does it? No, God, no, no, it's a keen hobby of ours, but I think... And I don't think Peter Bolsgeri would have come across more snide because of anything particularly wrong with Peter Bowles as an actor. But I think when he's being nice, he's being suave nice. Or generally, that's what people will ask of him. I've already said he he can break out of that. I've seen him play Cockney Gangster and be unrecognisable. But generally, people will ask of an actor what they've normally given. Whereas Paul Eddington was a bit better at bumbling. And therefore, those scenes where sometimes Jerry is putting pressure on Tom to go back to the rat race, I think would have been very different coming from Peter Bowles. Peter Bowles, who was in the pilot of Callan. I've just had the wildest But never in spats. Never in spats has the same number of syllables as (laughs) trouble in mind. The more often you say spats on this show, the less chance there is of Laps Cat sending us his VHS of Honey for Tea. Now, I've just had the most remarkable idea. Let us play a brief game of recasting. Peter Bowles replacing Gareth Hunt in that Beryl Marston. No. No? He's too assured. We need, he, again, we need somebody a bit vulnerable. Somebody who has genuinely got himself in over his head. Okay, right, I've got a suggestion. We've got right. more recasting to do in a future cast. I've got, I've got another suggestion. Okay. Lose Peter Bowles. What about Rodney Buse? Ah! <laughs> I see it. Yes, I see it. Yes, Rodney Busey gives that sense it was a moment of madness. It was folly. Fine. Still turned down some of his behaviour towards the health food man. Harvey, was that the character's name? Yeah. Yeah. Just one yes, last I thing I want to I pick up imagine. on, though. We were talking about Minder. At some point, I'm going to go out with some American traps. They're full of, like, fruity pebbles and Archie comics and things that Americans like. Trap some Americans. And talk about... The British shows that are success in the US and the absolute juggernauts of colossal success in the UK that are unknown outside the British Isles. Minder, I don't think Minder, if it was shown over here, I don't think anybody picked up on it. Only Fools and Horses, the British sitcom, Morecambe and Wise. Morecambe and Wise did. I know they did the Ed Sullivan show, but nobody talks about Morecambe and Wise I know, but in the same did. terms that they talk about Benny Hill, whereas in the UK, Benny Hill is a relic. You're so right, by the way, what you said a minute ago about how exports are not just UK to US, because, of course, they can be UK to other countries, can't they? As we saw the other day. Did we? Did we not watch a, well, I suppose you would say, not elderly, but retired couple, siblings, trying to enjoy upstairs, downstairs from their new abode, but struggling. You almost had me on completely the wrong thing there. When he <laughs> said elderly couple, siblings, it's reminded of the fact that my wife is desperate to get hold of some episodes of the US remake of Nearest and Dearest. Oh, brilliant. Who isn't? <laughs> <laughs> if you get them, please let me know. <laughs> but no, the... On the buses, sequel, Don't Drink the Water, which Blakey and his sister, played by Pat Coombs, go to Spain to retire. And there's an episode in which 
Pat Coombs is saying, oh, I miss the telly, I miss the English programmes and what have you. And so, yeah, Derek Griffiths and also Carlos from Duty Free sought them out with a telly. But of course, the telly is all in Spanish. So, very difficult to enjoy the goings-on in the upstairs, downstairs. They get it wrong anyway because the announcer introduces it as upstairs, downstairs, where of course you'd say arriba, abajo, which was also the title of a spin-off novel that when published in Spain... (laughs) had a cover which was Gordon Jackson as Cowley and the Professionals <laughs> holding out a pistol about to fire. Fantastic. Hudson's in a bit of a mood today, isn't he? <laughs> so are we ready for the next question? Go on then. Well, this question is from Tim Moon. If you'll pardon the expression, is it a good idea to take a soap opera character... And put them in a comedy. And the reference there, of course, was to Pardon the Expression with Arthur Lowe as Leonard Swindley. Which I think, did that run for two series and then got a spin-off? It did, well, it certainly ran for two series because they're both out on DVD. No, spin-off? Well, mm. you two on the question. I'm going to go and research this spin-off by looking at my old copy of the Radio Times Guide to TV Comedy, lest anybody think I'm going to do anything clever. I am really struggling right now. I mean, okay, to answer the question straightforwardly, sure, if there is a character who lends himself to a situation, comedy, why ever not? I am struggling to think of other examples of it. I've heard of situations where the idea has been floated. For example, Ken Morley as Reg Holdsworth in Coronation Street. It was rumoured that he was going to have his own sitcom with Granada when he left the street. I suppose you could have had, say, Benny from Crossroads. There, There is another Coronation Street spun-off sitcom. I'm going to wait and see if it's oh. going to occur to you. Is this a primary character no. or is it a bit more sort of... No, okay. The Brothers McGregor. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, Turn Out to the Lights was the spin-off from Pardon the Expression, but as I understand it, they were all wiped. And trashed, and all the tele recordings were burned as well. Didn't they like the show? The way you say that is as if just adding that bit about they're all burned as well. It was like, yeah, we need to make bloody sure this never escapes from the archive. Oh, pardon the expression, only two series, but 36 episodes. Uh, the Brothers McGregor, two characters who had only appeared on one episode of Coronation Street <laughs> and portrayed by different actors, but the, the link is there. And I know there was talk about Bet's Bar. Coronation Street is the most sitcomish of all soap operas. No, I'm thinking, as far as Coronation Street's concerned, I it's, the, the, had... I can think of a character who could support his own sitcom from a soap that's not Coronation Street. Okay, hold that thought. We'll come back to that. I was just going to say, as far as Coronation Street's concerned, in addition to those two shows, well, three if you count the extension from Pardon the Expression, you've also had instances of sort of borderline comedies. To quote W1A the other week, one of the BBC Mandarins was referred to as the head of generic comedy drama. You had occasionally things like Curly Watts or the Duckworths going off and doing something on a show that would then go straight to video or just be like a spin-off at Christmas time. I think like the Dingles in Emmerdale did things like that as well, where it would be more light-hearted than normal. So, yeah, I suppose you could say that they're very close to... They're not quite a traditional sitcom, but they are... They, yeah, they're, they're acknowledging that you have certain characters in the soaps who are there for light relief. 
I can't think of any spin-offs from Crossroads. EastEnders, I'm drawing a blank at. Okay, so you said you had a couple of characters from Soaps who you could imagine getting their own sitcom. Two characters from the same soap, Amos Braley and Henry Wilkes, in their own <laughs> sitcom. Who wouldn't want to see that? Well, I think we all would. I think you'd possibly have to take them outside of... Was it called Beckendale? I know it's. I know they changed the name of the district to Emmerdale. Because originally the farm was called Emmerdale and I think the district was called Beckendale. I think you should take them away from the Woolpack. Maybe just send them on a journey around the world. <laughs> hey, you know who's in Emmerdale these days? Go on. Teabag. Oh, right, right. Elizabeth Is Patrick Moa still in? Oh, no, not that I've seen recently. I occasionally get exposure to the soaps, and the last time I saw it was just last week. I saw Elizabeth Essenson, but I didn't see Patrick Moore, but he maybe just wasn't in that particular episode. But I think he was in it, yeah. If he's not still in it, he was certainly in it up until quite recently. So anyway, soap characters in comedies depends on the character, but it's not a crazy idea. Well, I'm all for it. Okay, now, do we include situations where an actor then appears in another show so it's not officially a spin-off but it's sort of taken advantage of their persona in the soap you have an example no oh i'm sorry that was a leading <laughs> question because i thought he's just gonna lay on the most no, amazing I actually, example I, I was thinking of as we discussed a few weeks ago split ends with anita dobson but the more i thought about it i thought no she's not the same character because her character in EastEnders was conniving and deceitful and so on, and she's not at all like that in Split Ends. So it's taken advantage of her popularity on the screen to then cast her in the lead role of a sitcom, but as far as her characteristics in it are concerned, no. Should we move on to the next question, then? What about the Paradise Club? Bullman and Dirty Den. Doesn't the Paradise Club have its own particular tie to a sitcom? A direct tie to a sitcom, which itself also then has a direct tie to Bergerac. Oh, right, hang on a minute. Now, this is this is getting very detailed. Now, you're asking that as if it could go either way, which clearly it can, because you've obviously got a very specific instance in mind. So, okay, we're playing what we'll now term Alfie Bassey's Six Degrees of Separation. So I've got to get from the Paradise Club to Bergerac. So the sitcom is the go-between. That's the link. The episode in which Leslie Grantham appears as Danny Kane from the Paradise Club, also features Barry Cryer. Why am I not getting this? What's wrong with me? Did, is, is, is there a sitcom that just completely passed me by for whatever reason? I am really struggling with this. Okay, a little it one. It was the spin-off from a sketch show. Oh, hang on a minute. I've got to get this. I, I've got, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm, this is not ringing any bells at all. Go on, then I'll tap out. The Detectives. Oh, of course, of course, Which of also course, features an episode course. in which John Nettles is playing Bergerac and Terence Alexander is playing Charlie Hunkerford. <laughs> of course. But no, I'm, I'm ashamed that I didn't get the Detectives. I'm absolutely appalled. So who's reading out the next... You're reading out the next question. Okay, uh, the next question is from Phil Cope, who asks, in the light of Only Fools and Horses' slight return... Oh! I didn't think it was that bad. I'm gonna be no, there was one thing about that that was very, very, very bad. Okay, hold that thought. We'll come back to that. 
So in the light of Only Fools and Horses' slight return last month, which sitcoms ended too soon without fulfilling their promise and which went on too long? Neptune, who asked the question about ripping yarns and good life, They're cutting out the middlemen, our listeners are talking amongst themselves. (laughs) Well, he adds, the young ones, too soon, are you being served too long? So, okay. I would say, actually, when we did Are You Being Served, I liked the later episodes. So I would say it didn't go on too long. It started too early. If you watch those later episodes, the later episodes are very, very tightly plotted. Everything from about, say, 81 onwards. And the last couple of series were written solo by... Jeremy Lloyd. But even in the 81 series beforehand as well, those episodes have just got a nice tight plot and every minute's used well and everything that's in the show builds up to the finale and so on. Whereas, yeah, in the first few series of Are You Being Self, sometimes you've just got a continuous sort of half an hour and then we conclude. Well, I'm finding that with Dad's Army. I think I've mentioned that before. There's an A plot and a B plot and as long as one of them gets resolved, the episode stops there. Okay, so what was it that you disliked so intensely about the all-new Only Fools and Horses? Do we have spoilers for Only Fools and Horses? I know I've said before that in the era of video on demand, spoilers for old shows really should be a new standard because there are people who are able to watch very old shows for the first time. And of course, you've got Network doing their DVD releases of the most obscure things. Right, hang on a second. I'm going to put my stopwatch on just a second. Dear listener, if you've not seen the conclusion to the 2001 to 2003 trilogy of Only Fools and Horses, so if you haven't seen the 2003 episode, then skip forward on the podcast exactly 60 seconds starting now. Right, you've got 60 seconds to explain. Original Only Fools and Horses ended with the boys becoming millionaires. Then it was brought back and, oh, we're not millionaires, we've lost all the money again. That then ended with them becoming at least rich again, thanks to Uncle Albert's will and the flaming sport relief sketch has Dell saying they've lost the money again. What? You don't give people that ending. It's like we said about Porridge the movie. If you really <laughs> wanted to make Porridge the movie to kill it for the British audience. Oh, I can't believe I'm You actually here. have it be... Yeah. Oh, never thought we'd end Five up seconds, back inside. I have my four, own... Four, three... Two, keep talking. One, stop. Right, right. For those of you who skipped forward sixty seconds, don't worry. We're now talking about porridge. (laughs) It would be it would be like that. Right, shows that ended too soon. I think there's one that's at the top of my list. Mulberry. It is an eighteen episode show that ends (laughs) after twelve episodes. It's written into the plot that it's going to be eighteen episodes long. Yes, we know that. I mean, Bob Larby actually said that on a video subsequently. He said, you know, it was this is how it was intended to be. There was going to be a first season. We know what the last line of the last episode was, and it's not a spoiler. If you haven't seen Mulberry, don't read anything. Don't look anything up. Don't download our cast on this topic. We know that the last line of the last episode is, I knew it was you. So even not that much. Okay, other shows which ended too soon. Well, there's plenty of shows which... Plenty of shows... I think it's probably going to be easier to think of shows that have outstayed their welcome than shows that have gone away too quickly. But I'm trying to think of shows which have gone too soon. It's so much easier to think of shows that outstay their welcome. Straight away, I'm thinking Red Dwarf. How many series of Red Dwarf are they? I've lost count. I mean, I think now it's a... 
ten of them, including the one that's been on so Dave recently. So eight series too many. <laughs> well, I like right up until the end of series six, and series seven I didn't like. And there was a long gap between series six and seven, and I think the writing partnership broke up, maybe temporarily, I'm not sure. So it just it didn't feel the same. From because less than the summer wine got to the stage where it was going on so long, it's like, I just want to see how long this can last. Even though I, I want to see how far away from its original <laughs> elements it can get. And I think they should still be making it. How many original members were there at the end of Last of Summer Wine? Because obviously you've got Peter Clegg. Chalice. Yeah, is that, that, it's just Clegg. I'm not it? sure about supporting characters. I didn't really pay much attention. I wasn't watching Last of the Summer Wine by the time it ended. I might have watched the last episode. But I have a feeling that even characters like Ivy from The Calf are not in it from series one so i think in terms of original characters it's just clegg okay i thought of a show which for storyline reasons only ended too soon come back mrs noah because get out she's still there she's still in space that's surely not how you're gonna leave it forevermore you've got to bring her back just put up a caption she came back (laughs) well you could just said that at the end of episode one I'm up to the end of series eight of Dad's Army, and I'm saying that's still okay. Because also, I think it's difficult to say, yeah, that's stuff that actually went on long enough. I'm not noticing a massive drop-off in quality. Maybe series nine will take a huge crash. And if you want an interesting one, in loving memory, the last series... Well, I'll tell you what, we'll do that properly. We only did the first two series, didn't we? Series four, on the one hand, proves that you can introduce a new cast member without the thing jumping the shark because of that but at the same time there are certain production problems and one of the characters starts behaving out of character and it's an odd hodgepodge of yeah we can expand the concept and make it work and then things start crumbling off at the edges okay i'm going to come up with a couple of ideas for shows that finish too soon faulty towers but that's always held as those perfect 12 episodes and that's the perfect length for a sitcom 12 episodes is it is it really People do say that sort of thing. I suppose there are instances where even a third series feels like a stretch. What about Dear John? That was curtailed, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. But then the shows that end and you think they could have got more out of that, but to get more out of that they would have had to have started moving, shifting away from the core idea. Okay, I don't know what you'll think of this, but what if I hadn't liked that? I would have liked another series of that. Would you have liked another series of whatever happened to the Likely Lads, you know, immediately after the movie, say? Or do you regret that they never got that? Because I know Clement and Lefrenet had that idea, and it doesn't sound that great of an idea for whatever happened to whatever happened to the Likely Lads ten years later. I think if anybody could have pulled that off, I think it would have been themselves. I think, yes, in most cases... It's just the whole concept of Bob being eaten up and burned by the business boom and Terry getting compensation it just that whole idea of them somehow switching places sounds to me too pat yeah i mean we did discuss in a previous show we discussed the revivals in 91 96 doctor at the top liver birds reggie perrin and in each of those instances reggie perrin that was unique it was its own thing as far as doctor at the top and the liver birds were concerned what was sort of depressing about those is that you were seeing people who were forever young in their original element. Even though they had shows that lasted, in the case of Live Aboard's, Live Aboard's lasted nine years, and the Doctor series from start to finish, including Doctor Down Under, best sitcom of all, personally speaking, I think. 
Uh, it lasted 10 years, but still, they were youthful, whereas now they were sort of middle-aged and had a mortgage to worry about, and things hadn't really worked out the way that they wanted, and meh, there's not so much fun anymore. But you could just as easily have said, before 1972, we're going to bring back the likely lads, only things have changed somewhat for them now. And you would have think, oh god, no, don't do that, because like lads were just, you know, young tearaways, you know, just living life to the full and no cares and so on. And no, they are, what, are you going to bring Teddy back from the army and life's passed him by and he's living at home and he's not happy and he hasn't got like a job or anything like that? Sounds awful if it was described to you, but of course, most people agree that the sequel's actually superior to the original. But it's only five years. It's only a five-year gap. But it feels so there much must be longer, a point though. To, oh, yes, because the pace of social and cultural change. Then, compared with now, delivery systems are getting more advanced, but the content remains the same. If you look at a picture of people in 2004, what were they wearing? <laughs> look at those trousers. Oh, and you remember that 2004 hairstyle? <laughs> doesn't really happen. You can't listen to a record and think, no, we won't get that now. Yeah, the first two minutes is going to be jokes about apps and twerking. But this proposed revival of whatever happened to, now, roughly speaking, when was this supposed to be? It just kept being talked about and it kept being brought up and it was always sort of saying, well, James Borlam won't do it. Okay, let me think now. Let me think when our title has ended too soon. Because the interesting thing here is Phil saying sitcoms ended without fulfilling their promise. That, to me, says something that a one-series show, it's not even a case of, that was so good, I'd like more. It's like, I would like more because I think it would have got good, and I'm trying desperately not to say, take a look Mr. Jones. <laughs> okay, what about... That Keith... would have been fantastic by series three. Keith Barron in All Night Long. <laughs> <laughs> Which we have to review one day. We do. Okay, Shows that didn't fulfil their potential, you've got so many entries from ITV over the years because they were so much more inclined to drop shows that they felt weren't performing well after one series, whereas traditionally, it's not really the case now, but traditionally, BBC gave shows longer to develop. The Whackers. Yeah, well, we never reviewed The Whackers after promising, but The Whackers was okay. I think the problem is is that we'd set it up as, that, right, we're going to do something really stinky and bad and dreadful <laughs> and is regarded as one of the worst. And then we watched it and it's like, this is a perfectly fine sitcom of its time and there's nothing too wrong about it. So I think we lost interest when we realised it was good. Duty free. Serious suggestion. You think that should have run longer? You have watched the last episode... And that one episode outstairs, it's welcome. It actually starts out quite well. My problem with that is that Duty Free should have had an ending. Hey, sorry, just flipping through the Radio Times comedy guide, because I'm not willing to stick my reputation that this was ended before its time, but I have a suspicion and I'm going to investigate it, and it also has Keith Barron in. Haggard is 14 episodes, and it's YTV. Do you think that's a YTV thing, 14 episodes? Oh, maybe, maybe. Of course, I saw Haggard. I've seen, of course, like everybody knows. I saw Haggard on Carlton Select cable back in the day. I think the number of people who are watching it on that particular platform on that particular night probably all could have easily fitted into the room that I was in. It's more than watching it at the time. Well, Haggard was wildly misscheduled. Oh, that's the general belief. It was put on. (laughs) 
Saturdays at 6.40 and then apparently the second series was Saturdays at 5.15pm and so it said if you watch it it's clearly meant for like the spitting image type slot which also like Room at the Bottom went there and Hot Metal it's meant for a Sunday night with a bit of way Okay there, there we go we've just led perfectly into Phil's question which sitcoms ended too soon without fulfilling their promise precisely that Hardwick House well yes hey which again should have been the Sunday 10 o'clock slot, and had it been, probably would have gone under the radar and just would have played out. Can no we bring this up? I don't know series. if we've mentioned this before, but I have seen this posted on the Mausoleum Club that Network DVD actually asked if they could put Hardwick House out and were told no. Because how many episodes? Was it just two episodes got transmitted? It was. I don't know if this might have accelerated its demise. My memory of it is that there was an hour-long first episode on the Tuesday evening followed by the first regular-length half-an-hour episode the very next night, and there it was going to settle on Wednesday evenings. So, I think that given that it got... uh, not a great reaction on the Tuesday evening, then that then meant people who'd missed it the previous night and sort of wondered what was all this hoo-ha about had the opportunity to then tune into it that very evening. That may well have just caused it to be taken off as quickly as it was. I just, I find it bizarre that, that I couldn't get a release in this day. It night. was just the fact I mean, that really, I mean, five of the seven episodes hadn't been broadcast, so they took an extra look at it, and clearly they must have still been stamped on the file somewhere, not, not for sale, not to be shown. And so they got cold feet. I don't think... The world would end, but it's one of those cases I think where, well, the guy before, the guy before, the guy before, the guy before me said that this was a no go area, and I'm not going to be the first person in this chain to say yes, just in case the guy before, the guy before, the guy before me was onto something. And at some point, somebody will. And because it's had all this build up, it's going to disappoint. From that point of view, I don't know about comedians. Do you remember like Happy Families being on? That was was that like half past eight on a weeknight? That was no. I think that was just after. Was that not nine twenty five? Was that not after nine o'clock news? No, I, I'm fairly sure I remember it still being light. I do remember it getting a bit of an odd reception. Uh, Thursdays at eight twenty five p.m. in nineteen eighty five. Oh, blimey. Ah, okay. Uh, eight twenty five p.m. indicates to me. Yes, now that was something I forgot to mention. We were talking earlier about British brevity and unusual series lengths. The other thing you don't get in British television anymore. The 35-minute long comedy. Phil Fritch and Catflap was 35 minutes. Young Ones was 35 minutes. I sort of associate that being a particularly 1980s thing. I think some Hancock's half hours are more than half an hour. And then of course the later series that are half an hour are called Hancock. Shows that went on a bit too long, I suppose you could say when a show starts to get maybe to series four or to five. I mean, I would say Men Behaving Badly. Men Behaving Badly is an oddity because I really like the last trilogy from the Christmas of 1998, but I don't like the series of 1997. By that point, it just sort of felt as if, yeah, it really has, it's just sort of run its course now, and episodes like the one where they're all sat on the sofa watching the TV, and it ends with them being beamed up, Star Trek style. Things like that where you sort of think, yeah, this has sort of run its course. I'd actually say, pains me to say it, but bottom. Absolutely adore Bottom Series 1 and 2. I think it's a brilliantly paced, really, really well edited show. When you read the script books, you can see the bits and pieces that have been cut out. And it's been so skillfully edited in those first couple of shows that the pace is just superb. There's there's no slow points. There's nothing that drags in those first couple of series. Series 3, I'm really not keen on. 
I can tell you exactly the point where I sort of lost interest in Bottom. Because even though Bottom is ridiculous in series 1 and 2, as far as my memory serves, it never actually breaks the laws of the universe. And suddenly at the end of series 3, at the end of the first episode of series 3, which is a pretty good episode, the one where I was trapped on the Ferris wheel all night, they are rescued by the hand of God. And they start, you know, alluding to the audience and sort of talking to the camera and so on. And I just sort of thought, uh, yeah, you've just sort of stepped out of your own reality here. And then there are things later on. There's like the, the violence gets so extreme that it's like you could sort of excuse what's happened in the first couple of series and say, well, that's pretty brutal, but it wouldn't kill you. Whereas there are things that they do in series three as far as the, the cartoon violence, which are just absolutely absurd. And then you think, okay, well, yeah, this isn't at all feasible. I think they're also playing a little bit more to the crowd in the type of humour. I think it's closer to the stage shows, which is great on the stage show if you're in the theatre or whatever, but it's not the same on the small screen. pains me to say because I absolutely adore first couple of series of Bottom, but yeah, Series 3, I can sort of live without. Series 3 of the Dustbin Men. People just run through their characteristics and everybody hits Eric. People other than Jack Rosenthal are writing it. I think he wrote all of Series 1. I don't know about Series 2, but certainly the fact that it's no longer being cared by by its originator is too obvious. And also, Series 4 of I Didn't Know You Cared. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to mention that, actually. Yes. And series 2 is not so good. 1 and 3 are the good series of that. But, oh, yeah, that really does become a case if somebody comes on and says their phrase and then goes off, and then somebody else comes on, a new character with a new phrase. Tip top. Okay, let me just quickly go back and say one which... I don't think it's fair to say it didn't fulfil its promise. I think it does, but I would have loved to have seen more of it, and I think there could have been more of it as Early Doors, the uh, Craig Cash, Phil Neely scripted sitcom with John Henshaw, 2003-2004. There's only two series of it, and it's such a lovely show. And yeah, I think I had plenty more mileage, and I would love to have seen some more of those. And just to finish, shows that went on too long, The Upper Hand. <laughs> well, it had an ending, didn't it? And then they came back. What are you doing that for? Don't come back. You've, you've finished. When did the Quantum Leap episode happen? Oh, God, that was still before the big finale. Oh, you're right. Yeah, no, it was definitely I think that's the point at which it had definitely gone on too long. (laughs) What about Selwyn? I haven't watched an episode of Selwyn Frog It since ever. I maybe saw one once on its original transmission. It goes on the list. It is actually on our request list. So Selwyn Frog It will get done. How many series... Is it three of Selwyn Froggit and one of Selwyn? Yeah, well, that was the thing. I think the three series of Selwyn Froggit, fine, but Selwyn itself is not up to the same standard as How Selwyn do you want Froggit. to break this up? Because it's going to be a lot to watch. Do you just want to burn through all three episodes of Oh No? Or shall we do two of Oh No and then one of Oh No and then Selwyn? Or... Uh... Let's do this in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, and do the gaffer as well. Coming soon, Oh No, it's Selwyn Froggit. Okay, so the final question actually comes from our own DCT. And he has asked, which sitcoms do you think would have made good video games? We've already mentioned the show. Have we? Duty Free. <laughs> now, is this... Because you've got, you've got to steal it. You've got to get away from Gwen Taylor and towards Joanna Van Geisigam. <laughs> now, are you picturing this as a platform game 
like Mario, where you're actually controlling the character who's running around here, then everywhere, or but not more levels, a... more like Jet Set Willy, where you're running through different. You know, it just goes on and on and on. It's not like you have to get past one level to get to the next. Because I'm sort of picturing this more as a text adventure, where you've got the option you could, you can do this or you could do that. Which option you're going to take, so on, and so on. How many sitcoms actually had their own video games? DCT advises us, although I've not seen the evidence for myself, that there is a video game of a lower low. I falsely claimed on a previous edition of the Sitcom Club that there was a ColecoVision cartridge game of Take a Letter, Mr. Jones. That wasn't true. I apologise if you went looking for it on eBay. Otherwise, if listeners I'm... will permit me, I'm not going to say this out loud. I'm just going to first send Mooncat a link. <laughs> <laughs> to something that will blow his mind. Right, okay, hang on. It's worth okay. hearing the reaction, especially when you see the loading screen. Okay, now, okay, you're saying it's going to blow my mind, so you're giving this pretty big build-up. Now, I'm going to give a genuine reaction. What are you going to say? Sitcoms that could be made into video games, and that were, I don't think this one would spring immediately. Okay, here's... Okay, I'm going to give you a genuine reaction. Oh my god. Whoa, look at that. And what what have they done to Bernard? <laughs> what the hell's that? Mooncat is reacting to a page on this site called World of Spectrum with screenshots of the Yes Prime Minister computer <laughs> game. Oh, this is fantastic. Originally priced at fourteen ninety five, nineteen ninety five for disc version, and that's nineteen eighty seven. That's not chicken feed. Blimey. Available for the Spectrum 48K, the Amstrad CPC, BBC Micro, BBC Micro 1997, and Commodore 64. <laughs> Blimey. And there's Shimahaka's desk with a very tall lamp. I'm not sure why it needs to be so tall. And he's got his bits and pieces on the... Yeah, and there's a hand, which was okay, so you're going to say, okay, what are you going to do? And so on. Now, do we have any information about what the actual plot of this is? No, I mean... There is actually a TZX file and a TAP file there. <laughs> we could download it and play it. Right. Okay. I'm going to send this to somebody who I know has an emulator on their PC. And I'm going to ask them if they will play this and report back. So that is that is fantastic. I know I would not have guessed, yes, Prime Minister. I'm now wondering if there is... I wonder if there's a video game to the British version of Full House, scripted by Vince Powell. And starring Christopher Strali from <laughs> Only When I Laugh. Anyway, I've made my choice. Duty Free, the video game, because the plot is really built around trying to get away from something and get towards something. It's perfect for it. And maybe you could have one of those like multiplayer version where one of you, you could get three friends around. So you can be Keith Barron, and you can be Gwen Taylor, and you can be Neil Stace, and you can be Joanna Van Geisigam. <laughs> Yeah, no, I like the more and more I hear about this, the more I like we, it. Actually, so, I mean, you could play that online. You could put that on the PlayStation. <laughs> or... Okay, well, I'm going to go the opposite direction to yourself. So, I mean, so, so then if you're going to like do it in the 21st century and expand it on, so somebody can pretend to be Carlos, somebody can pretend to be Fraser Hines in that one episode he appeared in as himself. <laughs> is that the same one with Judith Chalmers, or is that a different one? I don't know. I just remember uh, Carlos calling him Fraser Hines. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to go in the opposite direction to yourself because you've chosen, quite rightly, you've chosen a show where 
you actually could then make it into a video game and there's a clear purpose behind it and so on. So I'm going to choose one which I can't possibly see how it would become a video game or what you'd do in it. I'm going to choose You're Only Young Twice with Peggy Mountain Pat Coombs <laughs> in the retirement home. I have no clue as to what the plot's going to be, if there is a plot to it at all. But yeah, okay, I'm going to go with that. Or possibly The Blunders with Frankie Howard. Because that's already a cartoon. Wasn't that much I can add to that if they're such poor choices? <gasps> oh, I can't imagine no, what they no, would be okay. like. No, 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 right, okay. I'm gonna. I'm sorry, Laps Cat. I'm gonna have to break the rule. Spats. Spats well, the thing pe- is, is that there was a perfect. Mr. Wimpy computer game, and there are currently now if people get them on their phones, like fast. Exactly. With... It's absolutely perfect. You've got to. Well, service... I was trying to hold off saying that. Well, you've got to. Yeah, you've got to serve the burgers on time. You've got the customers queuing up because sometimes you have to cut corners in order to serve everybody quickly. Then, okay, okay, okay I've got an idea. I've got an idea. Right, you've got a little screen like top left, and if you're playing really well, TJ will pop up and say something nice. But if you start playing badly, Karen will pop up and chew you out. Yeah. And at what point does Nicholas Parsons appear? That's the. That's what you get for winning. Well, and then he offers you a prize from the sale of a century. <laughs> was there ever a computer version of Gambit with Fred Dennage? There was a computer version of Bullseye, I believe. Way. It's a strange world because in the early 80s, the UK was the fastest growing computer market for a while. And so very, very British franchises that you would not expect to make that leap did make that leap. Oh, not in your Nelly, the game. <laughs> Well, I think that, you, rather than setting it within the universe of the game, you actually have to set it within the production of the, and you have to prevent cast members leaving while also making sure that nobody gets a laugh too loud unless it's Hilda. So what you're basically saying is that you are playing the character of Brian Izzard. I like this game. I want this game. This is fantastic. Yes. If there was a role-playing game in which I could be Brian Izzard, then I'm there. Fantastic. I would have land parties. And then you could be David Bell of London Weekend. And then <laughs> someone else could be Keith Beckett. And himself over there, he could be John Ammons. Just take your pick. We've probably emptied out the mailbag and turned it inside out to make sure that there's nothing still inside it. So what are we going to be discussing on the original and best sitcom club next week? Next week, we're going to be going old school. And we will explain next week what we mean by going old school. It's part, I think, of our first anniversary celebrations for the month of April. And we're going to be looking at the very successful John Sullivan scripted, non-Only Fools and Horses, Citizen Smith show, Just Good Friends, with Paul Nicholas, who's got reggae like it used to be, and Jem Francis, who, to the best of my knowledge, doesn't have a quotable hit single but was in The Good Companions, so I do know that she can sing. That was a top show, Good Companions. So there you have it. In the meantime, if there's anything you want to ask us, it doesn't have to be a mailbag episode. If there's anything you want to ask us at any point, just tweet us at the Sitcom Club. Sitcomclub.com is where you can find all the previous episodes of the show going back to April last year. You can also follow us on Facebook as well. Just search for the Sitcom Club and you'll find us on there. And we do occasionally update the page. In the meantime, this is Mooncat saying thank you very much indeed for listening to the Sitcom Club.